Hello everybody, I'm John Atak, and this is Mike Render. You, you might be <laughs> the other side of the screen, actually. Here he is. What? No, wait a minute. Here he is. No, he's appearing. Oh, he's... And for hi, those John. Of, yeah, hi, Mike. For those of, of you who don't know, Mike's a good friend of mine. And I won't hear a bad word against him, okay? So you be careful <laughs> in the comments section today. And... Um, for those who don't know, and, and, and Mike is is pretty well known and celebrated, I think, as he should be. Um, he's the author of a wonderful book called A Billion Years. And it, he didn't actually spend a billion years in this organization. It just felt like it. Right. Well, <laughs> I'm still fulfilling my, my commitment, John. Yes, of course. Of course, <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Um, to uh, follow and uphold command intention. Is that it? There we go. There we go. Achieve the aims of Scientology. Mm. Yeah, a world without war, insanity, or money. Well, actually, I have a new aim, a world without Scientology. Yeah, that sounds like a very positive <laughs> aim to me. Oh, dear. So um, you spent far too long in Scientology, you were, I think, what, six when you, your mum yes. and dad got into it? And you were yep. eight, 18 when you joined the flagship Apollo and um, had lots of adventures, which are very well detailed in your lovely book, uh, which everybody should, when, by the end of this, rush out and buy it if you haven't already. <laughs> and yeah, don't leave now. <laughs> yeah, stop, stop. <laughs> Don't put us on hold. And um, the, it, it is, it's a peculiar thing. We've come to know each other reasonably well over the last couple of years. And um, we're good friends. You know, it's it's that simple. Yes, we are. We are. And we, uh, I think this is mutually true. We enjoy one another's company and enjoy one another's um knowledge about the subject which is always the subject of our discussions um although things weren't always that way and our first encounter was when i was in the office of special affairs with one warren mcshane from religious technology center traveling to john's home in nottingham and seeking to intimidate him <laughs> into stopping his attacks on scientology uh that was uh, a very sort of strange encounter um as anybody who knows john probably would guess he wasn't really receptive to the strong arm tactics that were attempted <laughs> it was a when we finally got to have the meeting um it was short and it was very short. Be, be, not because, sweet. <laughs> yeah, my my lawyer had had, without telling me, had, had made some financial offer, whereby I'd be willing to shut up if I was given however many millions of zlotties or whatever the currency was at the time. <laughs> and I had no idea of this going into the meeting, and it, I I wasn't willing to sell my silence. That there well, there wasn't a price available, because um, I wasn't a sensible. Then as I am now, you know, I mean, if somebody wants to buy my son, now, please, fill in the form below. Um, so the sticking point, as I remember it, 
I am a, you know, an unusual human being. I asked what your ranks in the Sea Org were. And nobody was willing to tell me what their rank in the Sea Org was, so I left. <laughs> and it just, uh, it, it, it was like, you know, Bobby Fisher and Spassky over, over what flavour yoghurt we ought to be eating, you know. Yeah. But at the time, you were actually much more interested in visiting Trent Bridge Cricket Ground. I was. <laughs> and that put you off your game because I, I <laughs> left without me being destroyed, you know. <laughs> Yes, exactly. You know, distracted by other fish to fry. Yeah. Yeah. Other, <laughs> other, other wickets to save. Exactly. Sticky wickets. Sticky wickets. My God. Yeah. I, I played um, slips. I played silly mid on and I played silly mid off in my childhood. I only tried well, wicket keeper once because we didn't have protection. It's like, you're kidding me. <laughs> I was a wicketkeeper. Oh, bravest position in cricket. Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure that silly mid on and silly mid off isn't uh, braver, frankly, but. It's whatever. true. You, you definitely don't get any protection. <laughs> oh, dear. But so, you know, the, the confusion that people seem to have, this keeps coming up. The first thing is that you've got to abjectly apologize to everybody who you've annoyed and um can we just say that mike's very sorry and he's not going to do it again and he was a very naughty boy and he's not um that well that... well put john well put <laughs> it's you know we're done you've been out here for so long doing so much to help people taking so much flack putting yourself at risk that nobody has has the right to say that. But, you know, we want people to leave Scientology and speak out. And if they've done something horrible, we'll accept their apology, generally. that That's my view. Uh, otherwise, we'll never really deal with this monster. If, if you know, when, when I left, it, one of the shocking things that there were, nobody had defected from the intelligence section of the Guardian's office. Nobody was talking about that. I managed to pick up a couple of conversations with people who were like you mustn't mention my name and it's not my real name anyway <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> and in fact nobody in scientology actually knows my real name mm. there are still people like that john yeah that, that were guardian office intelligence operatives who operated under assumed names, and everybody thought that that's who they really were, and they weren't. I mean, look at Paulette. She still doesn't know, the, for absolute certain, the identity of the spy that was with her. Yeah. <laughs> and who wrote, who wrote reports saying, I nearly got her to jump off the roof today, and she thought this person was a friend. It broke her heart, I remember talking. Right, right. They been living you know a couple of years he'd been doing this just mm -hmm. just and i i do believe in redemption if i didn't believe in redemption i don't think i'd bother you know that it it's so yeah, that's a good that's a good point i mean if if there is no way for anyone to recover from their experiences or their participation in things and begin a new 
turn over a new leaf, for lack of a better term, then what's, what's the point in seeking to get people to come to a realization that maybe there's something wrong here because there's no future. So I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I certainly agree, John, that, that, um, you know, there's a lot of people who have legitimate reasons to, uh, be, you know, upset or pissed off or remain upset and pissed off about things that I did when I was in Scientology. I also will tell you that fortunately, the vast majority of those people are extraordinarily gracious and extraordinarily forgiving and extraordinarily understanding. And even the people who, um, you know, weren't a part of Scientology and the, and, and those people who were in the Sea Org, who were like my juniors, et cetera, et cetera, the, those sort of people probably got the worst of, you know, the bad Mike Rinder. Mm. You, you as um, an ex-Scientologist, you probably were, were the next level. And then finally, there was like the journalists and the, and the other people who, who got some shit for whatever reason. Um, funnily enough, the vast majority of those people, uh, like even in the media, people who have absolutely no reason to be forgiving, they're not, they never had any experience in Scientology themselves. They didn't understand, you know, you can sort of get the mindset that gets inculcated into people in the Sea Org if you were in the Sea Org, or the mindset that gets inculcated into Scientologists if you were a Scientologist. Even just the idea of the greatest good justifying all sorts of bad things, et cetera, et cetera. That if you weren't a Scientologist at all, I, you know, why would any of those people? have any understanding whatsoever of what may have been going on or motivating someone like me or the other people who may have abused them in some fashion. Um, and yet, two or one, those people are incredibly forgiving and understanding, you know, and some of them have become very dear, just like you have become a dear friend of mine, John Sweeney has become a very dear friend of mine mm -hmm. and, you know, flew all the way to the United States to come to my wedding. Um, and how crazy is that? Joe mm -hmm. Childs and Tom Tobin, you know, people who I spent years battling with in the media. Mm -hmm. And Joe Childs is just one of the nicest, most decent, um, careful, intelligent people that I know and I thoroughly enjoy having coffee with him every you know every time we manage to get around to it so yeah I I it's it's a subject that comes up um because there are some who are still out there sort of 
agitating about it. And I don't know that those people can ever really be satisfied. I, I you know, I'm I'm sure that that no matter what happens, there would still be a reason that something wasn't wasn't to their satisfaction. But for the for the most part, that's that's just not the case at all. Everybody in this in this wog world is so uh, gen un in general terms so forgiving and so nice and supportive. It's it's quite amazing. Yeah, and it's wonderful to know that that you know when the world seems grim and dark, that that there are only a relatively small number of utterly horrible people, and among those that number of utterly horrible people would be Lafayette Ronald Hubbard, <laughs> and we have this interesting. I mean, just a reflection on, on what you said about being in the Sea Org to understand being in the Sea Org. I was in Scientology for nine years. I I was not traumatized. I was not humiliated. I was not abused. Uh, two times people shouted at me, Sea Org members. I shouted back. One of them then had to be restrained from punching me, but you know he was restrained, and uh, I. You know, I had such a comfortable time that I almost have survivor guilt. You know? <laughs> um, then something happened to me that introduced me to the mindset of the seal. Of course, from the outside, I'd seen it a lot. I'd studied it a lot. I'd interviewed a lot of people. I'd heard awful things about six months on rice and beans and you know, being chucked overboard. And it's just the the usual everyday horrors of, of being a member of the sea organization, the elite group on planet Earth. Um, and I then uh, I went on a, an intervention, a formal intervention. It was the first one I did in 1991. And I was sleep deprived for four nights. Now, I have a funny sleep cycle. I have a delayed sleep wake. So I, I normally sleep from four in the morning till noon. What happened was I had four nights with only three hours sleep. And I suddenly got it that <laughs> if you just put that pressure on people if you don't give them an appropriate diet if you bully them and shout at them you're never actually in Ron Hubbard's terms in present time you're always you know just struggling to be there and 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 to do something so just that monumental difference that when you take people and you put them under stress you stress them so they're not sleeping they're not eating properly and they have no control of their environment. I remember a SEAL member giving me the tip that if my socks were dirty, I could invert them and put them on the other way around. And it's like, I'd just put a clean pair on, you know? <laughs> and then finding there were people who only had one SEAL uniform. And so they'd be desperately trying to wash and dry it. You know, these awful conditions that, that are imposed. I would say that, you know, if you get stuck in if you get stuck in Auschwitz, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to come out as Viktor Frankl. He did. Right. But <laughs> I would have I would have resented it a little bit if that had happened to me, I think, you know. I I, <laughs> I hear you, John. I hear you. Reading that book is a remarkable uh, what a remarkable man. Oh my god. But you know, th this sleep deprivation thing is really, really, really important. Mm. In, in fact, 
at, at the introduction of in the very first page of my book where I sort of give this disclaimer, I, I talk about the fog of sleep deprivation and the, the, the haze that it creates in your perception and awareness of what is going around, what is going on around you, but also your awareness of what, what is going on with you. Like your own self-awareness is blunted dramatically by lack of sleep. And if there is one common abuse that is that is very much overlooked, but is extraordinarily important in the life of Sea Org members, it is the lack of sleep. And mm. you, you you raise that, and it is a very a very appropriate observation to make about the impact that that has on individuals. And sleep deprivation in the Sea Org is just an everyday thing. Yeah, and and you know, to any would-be cult leaders who are watching this, that's the first thing to know. Don't let people sleep long enough. I'd I'd like to point out that um, when I interviewed members of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, or ISCON, as I like to think of it, um, the Krishnas, that is they, a con. Yeah, is it is a con? I S K C O N International yeah. Society for Krishna Consciousness ISCON. <laughs> There's a, there, there may be something in the title, I don't know. But I they boasted to me that they only slept four hours a night. And the same was true for Margaret Thatcher, that she decided it was a waste of time. And when you look at, because one of her statements came to me earlier, she said there's no such thing as society. There's only the individual. She was a follower of uh, the Austrian von Hayek, who basically said, if you simplify this philosophy, we're all psychopaths. Everybody's doing this for their own good. Anybody that says otherwise is a liar and you should get rid of them. And that was the basis of, you know, she took one of von Hayek's books and uh, I think it was The Road to Serfdom. We, we were looking this up the other week and put it on, on the table at her first cabinet meeting and said, this is our Bible. So you've got this idea, there are only individuals. Now, I come to that because I think that society exists. I think that the dynamics of a group will always affect a member. And one of the you know, very simple and very deep ideas that Robert J. Lifton in his you know, The Eight Sins of, of Thought Reform, as, as used in China and Scientology, one of them is the demand for purity. And I've been thinking about this this last few weeks, that it doesn't matter who you are, you've got this set of standards, whatever they are. You know, it could be, uh, uh, Ron Hubbard, of course, have heard that, that Bantus have a moral code that says you've got to steal anything that's not stuck down. Um, right. I think he was wrong about that, but it shows you that there's, <laughs> there's this, and so much else, that that people will put forward the so the purity would be that you've got to steal things is what he's saying but there's the right behavior and we don't even necessarily think about how much that's imposed upon us but you're in a group where you're not sleeping enough you're getting crap food you're being told to do stupid things let's face it and you're within a 
a collective, a group of people that have the expectation that this is how you behave. Um, reading Jefferson Hawkins, um, brilliant book, Counterfeit Dreams, um, he, he points out that, that to get Dianetics back on the bestseller list in the 90s, all he had to do was ignore all of Hubbard's advice all of Hubbard's teaching about PR and marketing and do the standard thing. And it succeeded. And that says something about, you know, in Scientology, the demand for purity is you will follow these rules. These rules are crazy. You cannot live up to them. You cannot achieve them. And just in case you think you can, here's the opposite rule. And you've got to do both <laughs> things because to safeguard technology and stop there being you know, keep Scientology working, that you can't say that's old or that's background about anything. So you'll pretty much have Hubbard says you've got to do it this way and you've got to do it the other way at some point or other. And I, even when I was a member, I felt people make choices there according to their own temperament, that decent people will choose the nicer of the Hubbard things. And people who've been upset by it will choose the nastier. And so you've got these rules, you're meant to live within them, and you are always surrounded. You know, your description of, of the birthing, what, 60 people or so in a fetid hole um, on, on the ship with no light, with, with no closet space, with, you know, with you having to get out of your bunk to turn round, get back in again, you know. But you are enclosed within a society. The expectation around you is so tremendous. And inside that, you have the guru belief. You have the idea that, that Ron Hubbard is the greatest man who ever lived. You know, he is 50,000 years. You pointed me back to, it was Fundamentals of Thought, isn't it? Where he yeah. says, he's the first person to have a decent idea in 50,000 years. <laughs> it's like, cool. And what was the one 50,000 years ago, Ron? Please tell us that this... <laughs> Fire. Fire. Yeah. See, it was it was it's the greatest thing since the invention of fire. Or or sliced bread, possibly. <laughs> sliced bread. That was David Gaiman's favorite expression. Yeah. Okay. Can't make an you, you the, the best thing since sliced bread, and you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs and same horse, different jockey. He had endless supply of little what do you call those things? Clashemisms. Yeah. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know what they are. Latitudes. That's a good word. <laughs> Latitudes. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But but, but uh, let me just say something, John. I, I uh, thoroughly, thoroughly agree with you about what you're saying. And I try to describe in, in my book, in, in various places, the the overwhelming presence of what I call peer pressure yeah. in, in the environment of the Sea Org and generally in the environment of Scientology and the influence that that has on your, your perception of what's right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And it, it is very, very, very powerful. I mean, you know, you I, I even make mention of those experiments of people sitting there, you know, 
which line is longer and the clearly Solomon the Solomon Ash experiment. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, you know, clearly that one of them is longer than the other, but if every other person in the room is saying it's the short one is longer, then the vast majority of people feel like there must be something wrong with their perception and them. And so they go along with what everybody else says. And this is a, the, you know, this idea that there is something wrong with you is so pervasive in Scientology. It is perhaps, you know, the biggest single element of Scientology grip and control on people. It is not just peer pressure, it's also the fundamental principles of Scientology and Hubbard's quote technology. Everything is what you cause. So everything that is bad that is happening to you is because of something you have done or your evil purposes or your PTSDness or what it like there's so many different methods of arriving at exactly the same point in Scientology. And that point fault. is <laughs> you are wrong and it is your fault. That's exactly right, John. And this is um th this is like so pervasive in Scientology. I you know, I have some experience with other cults, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses and Nexium and they all have elements of this. Nexium in particular, they yes. like Keith Ranieri refined a lot of Hubbard's or stole or used or whatever word you want to use. He even a lot has of suppressives. He even has suppressives. Yeah. Oh, John, the, the parallels are amazing. <laughs> I mean, I know some of those people pretty well now. Um, and you know, th there is even more to it than meets the eye or what people might have seen in watching the vow. It it is pretty astonishing. Um, in any event, this idea that your your um perhaps what you would call better nature or your inclinations or your personal morals or whatever, that is what gets eaten in Scientology. That is what gets eroded, corroded, and stolen from you and stolen from anybody who participates by reason of this this sort of pervasive, it's <laughs> all your wrong, your fault. You are, you are the one to blame for whatever bad thing may be befalling you, or you, you know, even down to, well, this food sucks. Well, what did you do to pull that in? Yeah. Why? Why are you failing to? change conditions in your environment how come you can't be cause over your uh, you know what you're being fed like it it's it's almost crazy and to look back and go yeah wait a minute i you know i got suckered into that and i believed all that shit wholeheartedly and it was it was something that seemed to make so much sense because there is some fundamental 
rightness about the idea that you have personal responsibility. I mean, yeah. personal responsibility is not a bad thing. And mm -hmm. the concept of being responsible for your actions and the results of your actions is a, a sort of a noble thought and mm -hmm. something that everybody can agree with. But when you take that to the extent that it is a completely black and white, like you're responsible for everything. Hubbard's responsible for nothing. If anything shitty happens to you, you know, that's your fault. It wasn't what he did to you or taught or anything or the organization did. Yeah, they beat, you know, he, they, I mean, there's a there's some really classic stuff like David Miscavige goes around beating people up, myself included, and the thought of the people and those around them is, what did you do to cause him to beat you up? <laughs> like, literally, that is the thought of a Sea Org member. Hmm. What did you do to cause the upset with COB that he felt the need to physically assault you? How nuts is that? That is, that is a microcosm of Seog thing. Yeah, and it's a. I mean, I mean, if if we go back to to Dianetics, modern science of mental health, or mental science of modern health, depending how we think about it, that he he says this thing in there. If if you knew what was wrong with you, it wouldn't be wrong. And there's a little trick. Um, so. And from then on, what's wrong with you is, uh, as I remember from that book, that you've got file clocks in your head and demon <laughs> circuits and all sorts of things that we'd forget about later. But you have this monstrous thing, the reactive mind. You have this agent inside you that controls you and you know nothing about it. And we're going to teach you about it if you give us a huge amount of money. And Something similar is happening in so many groups. You are possessed by a demon or by yes. whatever you want. There are psychotherapists who will tell you that, that you have these unconscious urges that, that are emanating from your id, maybe, or your superego. And while these things can be useful metaphors for understanding yourself, they're not, in fact, true. Um, neuroscience has yet to find the id or the superego. They do not appear to exist. Even this concept of the unconscious mind, which I don't like, we have unconscious processes. There are all sorts of things happening in the autonomic nervous system. And, and we do have that stuff in the back of our mind, you know, where you remember that you didn't put an attachment on the email two hours after you sent it. So there, there are things that are bubbling up and we're rather more complicated than we think. But this simplistic thought that you govern all of the events that occur to you, it's resurfaced as beyond the secret recently. It was the secret when Oprah right. was promoting it. It's called the law of attraction. Um, it goes back to Christian science. It go, There's a guy, a guy called Ralph Waldo Trine who wrote a book called In Tune with the Infinite, I think in the 1870s. Um, we get prosperity Christianity out of it. This idea that your will is controlling the world. And it really doesn't take very many minutes of rational thinking <laughs> to go, that cannot possibly be true. Right. 
You know, 419 people arrive on the same plane, it crashes. It was their karma. What? <laughs> you know, show me how that works. Some poor bugger, the, the lords of karma, are, are making the Akashic records up there. And every time a giant clam gives birth to 2,000 million giant clams, each one of them is entered into this book. So basically, the lords of karma, there have to be more of them than there are insects, than there are anything alive to keep the records going. And then think of the cross-referencing to make sure that that ant is repaid for having bitten me on the leg. And I hope it is repaid for having bitten me on the leg, because that's only right. This construction just becomes impossible. So to accept that there are viruses, there are bacteria, there are all sorts of things going on in this world at, at with such complexity, yes, you can do things to better proof yourself against that. But in vulnerability, which seemed to be Ron Hubbard's goal, he didn't quite achieve it, I don't think, and nor did anyone else around him. Mm, well, yeah, but he was pretty close. Look at, it, I mean, just look at how he ended up. He was like in such great shape. He was. I mean, he had achieved the state of being three feet back of the, the body bus three feet back of the bus yeah i was i was doing that i think it was with shelton the other day that it was like you know the whole purpose of scientology is to get you out of your head no laugh the whole purpose of scientology chris is to get you out of your mind no laugh and it is what happens you do go out of your head you do go out of your mind and would it be better to drive a car from three feet away from the steering wheel i don't understand the logic of this you know? <laughs> But it, uh, it, is, it is that ludicrous that, that when you reduce it, that um, he's promising something he hasn't got. The Buddha said, you should not teach enlightenment unless you're enlightened. It seems such a simple idea. <laughs> and Ron Hubbard is like so far away from a, a perfect or even a decent or a reasonable human being. And that brings me to the idea of um, charisma, which it... I looked it up on Wikipedia, so it's not that I know anything. Um, on the one hand, you have the theological idea of charism, which is that the Holy Spirit reaches down and touches you. You will see this in living action when Charles III is crowned, because the Archbishop of Canterbury will put a dot of charism on his forehead. Right. Function, oil. Yes. And that at that moment... Even though we don't believe in the divine right of kings and chop Charles I's head off for it, still secretly we do believe. So he will get, he will become charismatic at that point and he'll be able to cure scrofula by touching people if the king's palsy, apparently. And um, <laughs> what the fuck is scrofula? Yeah, well, that, apparently it used to be a problem. Yeah, I know you know. But it's some kind of skin disease, isn't it? It's, oh, uh, I have no idea. It doesn't sound very nice, does it? It doesn't. It sounds like something that makes you itch in the nether regions. In the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, it, it's, yeah. Uh, it's probably been completely cured because there have been so many British monarchs, you know. Oh, there you go. But Queen Elizabeth but, probably did her bit. Oh, she was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with Paddington Bear, I thought that was that was very good. Um, it, I've, 
yeah, the whole Harry and Meghan thing, I'm kind of, I watched all of that. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was like, <laughs> you know, here these people have been totally trashed by the media in Britain. And here they are going, no, this is what happened. And they show you bit by bit. I know. I, I watched the same thing. There's a lot of people here in the United States, oddly, who are like, oh, Harry and Meghan, they're such rotten people and they're this and they're that. I'm like, you know, you should probably watch that documentary because, you know, it just seems that perhaps the media, the tabloid media in the UK isn't like the perfect conveyor of truth. And, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I have no experience with this mm -hmm. and I have absolutely no experience with, you know, online smear campaigns or you know the the whatever let's not get off into that because it's just ridiculous I, I you know i i applaud his commitment a to his family and b to exposing what is so clearly and obviously what really happened yes. with the media and i empathize tremendously with him mm -hmm. um given the circumstances of his mother's demise mm -hmm. and then now he starts re-experiencing it with his wife and like uh you know i don't know what took him so long to get the fuck out of there mm -hmm. you know honestly so whatever Anyway, we were talking about Hubbard, so let's get back yeah, to that. And, and the notion of, of charisma. And, and uh, you know, the question that, that arises from those documentaries is, why have we got the royal family again? <laughs> oh, they bring in lots of money in trade. It's like, yeah, okay, fine. Um, but, well, it's so, it's so that there is a titular head of the Commonwealth, John. Yeah. The, and, the Commonwealth and, of, of nations that, like, uh, just... Go to Australia and see how much how much deference they pay to the how much deference they pay to everybody in Australia. Let's face it. Oh, whatever. But so that form of charisma doesn't seem to be working. You know that the royal family really have had a little rocky ride, um, and they should maybe I don't know, maybe they've misunderstood the word or something and should mm. look it up. The other form of charisma, the, the word apparently is cognate, with the word charm, they come from the same place. And I think that's what we're talking about. And if we, we look at Hubbard, that he, he is this perverse character, having you know talked with I don't know, tens and tens of people who worked with him or who met him from the outside. So you see, say, John Fort's take on you know, when he was in Corfu as, as a British consul, watching Hubbard chucking people overboard into the harbour sewage. And it's like, he thought that was a bit odd. That this, you spent time with him and the, the charisma, according to um, Weber, the, the sociologist who grabbed the word and brought it in sociology, it's, if I've understood it, it's something that happens at the interface. It's something we grant to people. Um, how charismatic was Ron Hubbard? Was he the sort of people who, wherever he went, people cheered up 
and became productive and loving or not? Uh, <laughs> yeah, or not. Um, but see, I have a different definition of charisma. Before we had this little mm. talk today, that uh, my understanding of that term, and I may even have used it in the in my book. I don't recall. Uh, I don't. I do talk about this this sort of presence mm -hmm. of Hubbard and the fact that he was uh, a larger than life character. Yeah. That. And I, before we got on air, I was actually saying to you, John, you know, being charismatic in my mind is being someone that people will follow. It doesn't necessarily make you good. Mm. Charisma is not an, uh, it doesn't have a necessary element of goodness to it. Mm. It has a, a elements of being able to get people to listen to you or do what you say or be interested in you or in some way attracted to your your shtick or your personality and Hubbard certainly had that I mean he was uh, you know I now have taken to describing Hubbard as a storyteller yeah that was his that was his that was his thing he told stories. He told stories about his life. He told stories to make a living. And he told stories to make Scientology. And, and he told stories endlessly about driving an atom-powered racing car with a dull body. Yes. <laughs> How he'd spent trillions of years. He, he was a master storyteller. And, you know, less charitably, you could say a master bullshitter. Mm. And... I say master because he was very good at it. Mm. His ability, like, I know that you can listen to the endless thousands of lectures of L. Ron Hubbard and go, oh, well, you know, uh, this is pretty ridiculous. This guy just rambles on and he rambles on and he mm. rambles on. And he does. Mm. But he rambles on with, with, an audience sitting in front of him completely captivated by every word coming out of his mouth. Yeah. I know it's easy now to, to go, yeah, but the guy was a bullshitter, you know, all the work that, that you and Russell Miller did of, of really exposing his, his proclivity to lie about the stupidest things from the age of two uh, is, has, given a different perspective but if you were one of the people sitting in the audience at the philadelphia doctorate course and he is going on about the most bizarre shit in the world and telling anecdotal stories and and you know every every lecture has got like a mixture of absolute fabulism and absolute ridiculous, you know, well, when I was, you know, sailing the Caribbean on the good ship Lollipop and, you know, finding the, the Doris last gold, the Doris yeah, Allen, yeah. Finding the last gold deposits on the Spanish main and yes. blah, 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 blah. You know, all of that, all of that ridiculous stuff Remember, there were people sitting in the audience, and if you watch the Clearing Congress, the only filmed interview, or the only filmed lectures that, that exist, mm 
the ones where nibs has been digitally erased from yep. uh you will see the audience sitting there like agog like captivated he was a for, for perhaps a, a, an appropriate word a spellbinding lecturer and a spellbinding storyteller he held people in in a sort of rapturous awe of every word that spewed forth from his dirty teeth mouth and that is in my view one way of describing a charismatic personality mm. there have been other charismatic i mean svengali it, the 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 actual svengali in my view is a charismatic personality mm. and this is is very very like when i was with hubbard you know i was uh 18 years old uh come from australia arrived at the apollo and then subsequently and over the next few years and ended up with him at la quinta and blah 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 in my view he was someone to be revered Though every word that that came out of his mouth was the was the most important thing in my life to be to have the privilege of being able to personally interact with him and hear his stories about what's going on on the other side of the moon and whatever the hell he happened to be talking about at that moment, how to fry a steak or what, you know, how to tie your shoelaces or why they why the flowers in a vase yeah why 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 is the end of a shoelace called an agalette you know it's just like whatever what and that is the thing about hubbard he would he would sort of spew forth with absolute certainty about anything and everything and if it was clearly something that he had not um experienced or learned about he would just say oh that's from whole track recall i you know i you know that's something that i learned back on on you know planet with the with prince chug or duke chug or whatever who knows like, with the ass lickers uh, yeah, yeah. I, I often wondered, I often, <laughs> that's the first time I've ever heard anybody say that out loud. Mm -hmm. And when I would read that, I'd go, how do you say this? Arslicus? <laughs> he'd just come back from London when he, he did it. So he'd heard a British expression that, that the Americans wouldn't know and was able to say, you know, that's where you all lived and you're living there still. But, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Hitler was charismatic. Uh, there's no doubt about that, Pe people's descriptions of him. He doesn't look very charismatic. And Lenny Riefenstahl said it took us six months to edit Triumph of the Will because he kept picking his nose. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and the, the Svengali character, you know, the Trilby Svengali uh, du Maurier novel, it, it is a very good comparison with, with Ron Hubbard because he was a very determined hypnotist. and. I, you know, I wrote a paper called Never Believe a Hypnotist, where I just 
pulled the things he'd said back in '93, I think it was, and it it's, it was the most surprising thing I've ever done in the research in Scientology. And there have been a lot of surprising things <laughs> because I went right in Science of Survival. He says, "Never believe a hypnotist. Never believe. Never, not once, not ever believe a hypnotist." And then elsewhere, he says, "I, I studied hypnotism at the age of 16. In Dianetics, he says both Dianetics is not based on hypnosis and Dianetic research is <laughs> using hypnosis." And he doesn't explain what a double bind technique is in hypnosis, having just used it on you. He was, uh, my friend, um, Professor Jos Urgut uh, of Dialogue Centre, he visited St. Hill, did the tour, and noticed the books in, in Ron's office and started writing down the titles. And they rushed him out of the room. He went back a month or two later and they cleared the shelves. And he said the books were made mainly pulp fiction, um magic texts this is you know on public display and lots and lots of popular books about hypnotism and it's like you know how he came to escape the reactive mind we'll never know and of course in in early days he absolutely recommended um hypnosis comes of age hypnotism comes of age by wolf and rosenthal which uh you know i finally found out what pain drug hypnosis and narcosynthesis are from that book because I'd been puzzling over that one since I was in survival. Narcosynthesis, that sounds a bit weird. Um, but there is a kind of, yeah, what, what you said about the reverence, you know, the 38 people at the Philadelphia <clears throat> Public course would have been sat there. I interviewed an absolutely wonderful woman called Joe Scott, who was his personal assistant in Fitzroy Square in London in 1954. And she said he'd get up at midday and there's nothing wrong with that because that's what I do. And he'd be eating his scrambled eggs and he'd have a lecture to give us that, that afternoon, bearing in mind that he sometimes worked a full 40 minutes every day. And she, he would say to you, what do you think about such and such? And he'd eat his eggs and drink his coffee, listen to what she said. Then she'd go into the lecture hall. And she said, I'd be watching him and going, oh, he's incredible. What an, wait a minute. He's telling them what I just said. <laughs> and so that dichotomy, uh, Harvey Haber, um, when he was at Lakinta, the, the first conversation I had with Harvey back in 1983, he was one of the people that shocked me, you know, that he told a story that meant something quite different to me. So he said that the day he arrived, you know, he's going to meet Ron Hubbard, and he's in one of the, you know, the barns where the filming's taking place. And his job is to close and open a shutter. And uh, as soon as Hubbard yells cut because it's too hot, they can switch the air conditioning back on. The shutters are closed so they can, you know, I think, you know, refresh the 104 degree <laughs> temperature a little bit. And he yells cut and Harvey's just standing there. And does nothing. And the next thing he knows is a stream of obscenities pouring out of Ron Hubbard's mouth at great volume in his direction. And the look on his face, as he told me, was the look of somebody who's just received a blessing <laughs> in awe of this. And I'm kind of going, that's outrageously rude. You know, I mean, why not just in a kindly way say, could you? close that mister you know 
and it, then finding that Hubbard was a ranting maniac. You know, I come from a Buddhist background where being calm and quiet and nice is is held in high esteem. So finding that he'd stand an inch away from people and you know get his filthy bad breath all over them because of his rotting teeth and scream his head off at them to reduce them to nothing, to destroy them, to put them back in their place. And I'm kind of, I think I may have been involved with the wrong teaching here. You know, <laughs> <laughs> This is not, you know, it's not something that I look up to. There's a funny story about pulling it in that, that I was told. Uh, somebody apparently walked into the Manchester organisation, found the registrar, and decked him and the registrar's lying on the ground you know this guy's taken over much money at this guy and he looks down at him he says you pulled that in and walks out <laughs> that's a funny story <laughs> what are you gonna do with it you know he did he did and it puts us in this awful you know what was the first overt and how are we ever going to stop this bloody thing from happening you know <laughs> Oh dear. And and so there is this idea, and it, it must have been there for you and for so many of us. I'm sure that I would have been completely in awe if I'd I'd met Hubbard. I'd met many people who were. And you know, sometimes they just met him once, sometimes they worked with him. I remember Hannah when we did the uh Hannah Hannah Whitfield, Hannah Eltringham, um, our dear friend. Um when she was at Toronto. Um, in 2015, when we did the Getting Clear conference, which was brilliant, um, she suddenly said that that Hubbard had he'd walked away. He was like 200 yards away from the ship, and he'd noticed that hairs were coming from a painter's brush onto the side of the ship. And all these years later, you know, she left in '82, I think. All these years later, she's still attributing a magical power to Hubbard, and I'm kind of going. You've seen those brushes? <laughs> there isn't one made that isn't shedding hair as it goes. They're cheap crap. You know, they're not bound properly. And I speak as somebody who knows about brushes, believe you me. Um, been painting for a long time. Uh, so this I, this mystical manipulation, as, as Lifton calls it, is going on. So there's always the idea of him having some special or extra knowledge. And... That, you know, you in your book, there's a great bit where he loses his temper with you and disciplines you for something you didn't do. <laughs> and you go, but he's seen deep inside me. He must understand something. And that giving of authority to another person, which is children, of course, we have to do, you know. Right. But it becomes, I think most people never stop doing that. You know, that the BBC said it, it must be true. The BBC said it. It can't be true. You know, I've met these attitudes. <laughs> yes. Well, well, that that's a really interesting point. And it, it's, you know, a part of what I tried to impart in the book is what the what the 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 thinking is that that informs why um do you, why do you tolerate this why do you put up with it why do you keep going why when things are so crazy and and 
you know, what any normal human being would look at and go, you know, I'd be out of there in one minute. Like, I wouldn't tolerate this for a second. Like, I would have just turned around and sucked him right back in the face. You know, those, those very, very natural reactions and responses to hearing about what goes on inside Scientology and particularly inside the Sea Organization, I, I really um, put a lot of effort and this is not an easy thing to do in hindsight through the fog of lack of sleep and through the the sort of hammered in idea in Scientology that emotions are bad and that you should be stoic and um, just you know, like Ron Hubbard. Of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stoicism, my God. When when whatever, I'm not going to get into that. So, so, but I spent a good deal of time with my, uh, the woman who became my good friend, and I call her my editor slash therapist, who constantly challenged me to explain myself, not, not describe what happened, but explain myself explain what was going on in my mind why wasn't that enough to get you to rise up and jump the fence why wasn't this enough to cause you to doubt why wasn't this enough to cause you to finally leave what is it what was going through your head and what was going through your mind and that was a a somewhat painful process honestly it wasn't easy and she was very very good at it and and we 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 would like i would write okay so here's what happened and then i would send it to her and then she'd call me up and say okay we need to talk about this mm. like we need to talk and it would be like 2 hours or 3 hours okay so you say that x y and z happened and what were you feeling at the time i'm mm. like Kathy, I have no idea. I don't know what I was feeling. Well, think about what you were feeling. Like, like describe for me the circumstances that were going on here and what were all the factors that were at play. And, you know, through that process, I came to kind of um, at least make my best effort to describe and answer that question that everybody who has never been in those circumstances always asks yes how is it that you who seemed like a sort of a generally an okay kind of guy could have turned into a a monster and why would you tolerate and put up with the level of abuse that you did? And, you know, that little example that you just gave of the, you know, Hubbard saying, uh, you know, even though the, the stats that he got that indicated that I had, quote, false reported the statistics of AOLA um, were the wrong statistics and it wasn't anything that was in my control, he was like, oh, this guy, uh, he needs to go to the RPF and he's got evil purposes. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, 
well, I guess Ron knows better than me. I guess he knows something about me that I don't know. Like he knows, he knew that I had a reactive mind and I didn't know that. He knew that I was a Thetan and I didn't know that. He knew, like this magical thinking is very, very pervasive. And the idea that Hubbard has this, this all pervasive knowingness about everything and in particular about you, if you are in direct proximity to him, is, is an extraordinarily powerful uh, control mechanism. And, you know, I shuffled off to the RPF for something. I, I mean, and I got to say, I also mentioned in there, at that point, it was kind of a relief to go to the RPF, believe it or not. Uh, you know, the pressure of doing what I was doing at that time and holding down or trying to hold down the, the amount of different things that I was being told I was responsible for and sleeping four hours a night and being like always constantly in trouble. The RPF seemed like a holiday camp to me. It didn't matter that I was, you know, sleeping on a, on a straw mat in a or not at all or lying in on concrete or you know working or running around in a black boiler suit or calling everybody sir or whatever all of that was like yeah but i don't have any responsibility nobody's giving me shit for anything i'm like i'm like the 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 most shit i got was well you didn't empty the garbage can properly okay well i'll go do it uh, anyway that you you touched upon something that was that is again a microcosm of this bigger picture of to some extent everybody in Scientology operates on that principle that there are things that Hubbard knows and understands about me and about what's wrong with me that I probably haven't yet paid enough money to find out what that really is so i will just keep going until i get there i'll keep earning my money and handing over my checks until i get there and then maybe i'll understand and it, it one of the first things that i really got after i left Scientology, and i can't remember who i was reading but but they made the the statement that in a an authoritarian cult that there will be a, a degree of gibberish spoken by the leader and the followers will go, oh, I'm not advanced enough yet to understand that gibberish. <laughs> and Speaking it, of Xenu. Yeah, when, when you tricked me into reading History of Man so we could talk about it, <laughs> um, it was the most gruelling thing. It's only 90 pages, but it is such... And he's wandering all over the place. You know, your last 60 trillion, 73 trillion, 76 trillion. I mean, talk about truth is the exact time, <laughs> place, form and event. Um, oh, dear. Possibly the identities of those involved, which he doesn't want to include in his definition. But th there is another aspect to it, which, which people don't necessarily, you know, I mean, if we just say, well, look, charismatic leader, you know, you believe what the leader says. Look at all the Russian troops who are, torturing and interrogating Ukrainians to try and find the Nazis because they've believed <laughs> this insane construction that this Jewish stand-up comedian who's, you know, I don't know what his act was like, but he's, he's 
done a pretty good job as a as a national leader over the last year. Um, that that this Jewish did I say Jewish <laughs> is the head of the Nazi Party in the Ukraine, you know, and and I have a few problems with that. But there's something else that that happens in Scientology that is very special to Scientology and that that outsiders don't necessarily fully get, and that is the amount of you know, you said, you know, you're not meant to have emotions. You're not meant to feel anything. You know, there's uh, human emotion and reaction, H-E and R. Um, there's blame, shame and regret. There are all these things off there that emotions, this really nasty sort of stuff in some way. And the, I really got it. I, I um, did TR coaching with, um, he was Bette Midler's husband. I can't remember, Martin von Hasselhoff or something, Hassel something. And he was brilliant. He was really amazing. It was great spending a day with him. But there was nothing I could do to get a reaction out of him in training routines. It's the only time that ever happened in nine years. I could always get something to laugh or respond. Nothing. And I realized it's because he was a professional actor. And so he'd learned this skill of just not reacting. Right. Later, as I... Gradually thought about this. I went, you know, in Scientology, we were trained to pretend emotions. We were trained to find a point on the tone scale, half a tone or a tone above somebody or below somebody, to manipulate them into another emotional state. Now, I never once used the thing about taking somebody down emotionally, and I didn't find people's ruins or, or that kind of stuff, because it just seemed icky to me. It just seemed like a wrong thing to do. And it was right. very easy talking people into coming and, you know, <clears throat> having a free personality test. So I, I didn't need to do any of that nonsense. A bit like Jefferson Hawkins, really. I, I just didn't apply the tech because it, it didn't work, didn't seem good. But that thing of mimicking emotions, it made me think of another actor, Peter Sellers, who, who Stanley Kubrick called the greatest actor in the world. Um, and uh, certainly... Uh, Dr. Strangelove is one of the greatest films in the world. Absolutely. Oh, I agree 100%. I agree 100%. So is being there. Oh, yeah. And what a shame he didn't have the heart surgery that he was lined up for because and made the move being there instead and died. You know, such a great actor. But he said in an interview that he didn't know who he was, that he was an actor. He was somebody who filled roles. And that really resonated with me as I looked at Scientologists and said, Let's all play pretend. Let's all pretend we're enthusiastic. And as Jerry Armstrong, when I first met him in 1984, pointed out, the tone level of the sea organization is fear. <laughs> I think True. terror might have been closer, you know. But... And then over the top of that, you've got this pretense at cheerfulness and enthusiasm with people who are just and if you've monkeyed with somebody's emotions to that extent, that they don't know how they feel anymore. Mm -hmm. and that's that, very true. Yeah, you know, that's very true. you're going to have to change, and it's going to have to be okay to be inside your body, and you know, feel what you actually feel, and express it. The, the amount of people who said to me that that. You know, somebody they loved, particularly a parent, died in Scientology, and they didn't grieve because they'd really believed this idea of, oh, just pick up another body. You know, they're just dropping the body. And okay. 20 years later, 10 years later, the grief hits them. The tsunami that's 
always been there, always been inside, hits them. One of the many psychologically dangerous things that Scientology does in corralling people into wanting to become the supreme narcissist, second to the supreme narcissist in the universe, which seems to be the only point of Scientology to make you, as my friend Mitch Beattie put it, smug. You know, that he replaced the way to happiness with the way to smugness, and he replaced the state of clear with the state of smug. You know, and it's so true, you know, it's there's nothing there. You've the other aspect with Hubbard, of course, is that you think your mind's being read because he's an operating Satan. And I remember that, you know, for me, the wall of fire was doing the wall of the OT3 and realizing that they don't know shit. These people don't know anything. I had uh, Stephanie Ryburn, who'd, who'd run the Birmingham mission that I came in through. She wasn't there when I came in. She'd always treated me with disdain, it felt to me. She'd never used my name. I had long hair. I thought, oh, she hates hippies. You know, it's probably that. But she always looked sour. And she was a class eight OT3. Wow. And it just so happened that seven years on, I'm, and she never said a kind word to me. Seven years on, we're both in the in the waiting room having our OT5. And she says to me, and she, her OT3 was supervised and her class eight course by Ron Hubbard. So somebody might have known what it meant. But whether it was Zenu or Zemu, we'll never know. Um, but she came out with this big grin on her face. First time she'd ever smiled at me. She called me John. And she said, "Is John, isn't it wonderful that Ron's come up with something that cleans up the mess that OT3 makes? And that was the oh, point where I realised what the OT levels were actually about. You know? Oh, dear. Oh, John. Oh. What time is it? It's probably time we wound up, really. Probably. Probably. It's always such fun, though, you know. <laughs> um, we always ramble on about the strangest things. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's it's what I like about this. I, I very rarely have a planned interview. And um, I love it. I'll say to somebody before we start talking, what do you want to talk about? And um, if they haven't got anything, I'll you know, might shoehorn something in. But it fascinates me how these subjects open out as we talk about them and, and I know the insights that that I gain by by talking with people and realizing, you know, there's more to this than I than I had apprehended in the first place. So Right. And and I I that that happens on my end of this equation too. I go, John, you know, because you're so well read and so and have so much um, worldly knowledge about the subjects. I, I don't, the, the broader subject of mind control and influence and hypnotism and et cetera, et cetera. And it's always fascinating to me to, to talk about these things with you because you, you bring so much, so much, um, just so much knowledge to the subject. I have experience hmm. that you sort of tap into. You have knowledge that I tap into. Hmm. I, I think it works both ways that, that because you have approached your experience intelligently, you, you have something to say. I, I, I had a, a chapter with Steve Hassan in a, an Oxford University Press book um, called Lone Act to Terrorism. So, I, you know, I, I'm now a celebrity in the footnotes of history. And um, 
it it was it was they wanted me to describe myself and it's like well because they're all like professor this and that that and the other and in the end we came down to the phrase scholar practitioner <laughs> and i really like that and that's perfect yeah and and that's the track of course you too are a scholar practitioner now you're somebody who knows a great deal about a subject and you have had a long time to think about it and put it in context so you know it, i i didn't set out to be a scholar it, it that was that was not really my objective i right. just wanted to understand what scientology was so that was the history the biography the techniques you know how it recruits how why people stay involved what happens when people leave most important of all for me how do you undo what hubbard has very deliberately done to people and that you know we still haven't managed to make that fully available um you know between us and and, and i think more of it is coming out now i think there is because of um you know um wild wild country and and seduced and the vow and various other things that the streaming platforms have found there's a huge demand and under aftermath of course very successful there's a huge demand for this information and the media have been going oh nobody's interested in that for decades right and now people are going how does that weird stuff happen and so we you know we might get to the point where somebody goes let's make a documentary about not what happened, but how it happened, you know? Right. We'll get right. Yeah, that's a that's a that's yes, that's a very, very interesting idea, John. Maybe mm -hmm. I will uh maybe I'll figure out how to to sell that to someone. Yeah, pitch it to somebody and then, you know, maybe somebody will pay me. Bring you in it bring you in as the as the expert uh scholar practitioner. That's it, or guru, you know, fund <laughs> it. Oh dear! Well, great fun as ever, Mike. And all right, uh, my friend. Lovely to see you as always. I'll right. I'll make it over to the UK and we'll have an in-person get together one of these days. Yes, that would be fantastic. That'd be wonderful. Okay, thanks very much, Mike, and thanks to everybody out there. Bye. Hi. John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like as well as subscribe and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. We can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much. What time is it? It's probably time we wound up, really.